It seems highly appropriate that we're looking at Christian community today in the light of uh, what's going on, how to be God's people, how to take responsibility for um, one another and for the wider community of which we're part. So it seems a highly uh, relevant and apt word. Um, there's a danger that because we live in a, an individualistic, consumer, choice-led culture that um, the language often comes into church life, doesn't it? You know, we hear people say, I'm church shopping, for example. Um, now, in essence, there's nothing wrong with church shopping. It's, it's right. Um, it's right that we look around different churches. If, we've set, if we're looking to settle in a new area, we're looking for a church. It's absolutely right and proper that we go and we listen to the preaching, we experience the worship, we see if the, this is a family and if there's a sense of unity and of God's presence. That's absolutely right. We should be asking those questions, shouldn't we? But the danger of the term church shopping is that we can turn it into a kind of just a consumer choice, as if being a Christian and being part of a church is entirely an act of consumerism. There is a danger here. And actually, Paul would say to us, as he said to the Thessalonians, being a Christian and being part of a church actually carries responsibilities. We all have responsibilities to serve God and serve one another and serve the local community. So when we're choosing a church, the, the, the bigger question or the more important question should be, where is God calling me to serve? Where is God calling me to serve? Now that doesn't do away with the, the quality of the preaching and the worship and everything else. Those things need to be right and they need to work for you. But the bigger question is always, where can I serve? Where am I being called to serve? So I don't want to do away with uh, people looking around and seeking God's call on where to settle, but I think sometimes church shopping can be a bit uh, misleading as a, as a term. We are not primarily consumers. We are primarily those with a responsibility to serve and love God and others. Um, Paul addresses some key areas of responsibility because there are some holes in the net. This, um, the church at Thessalonica is a flagship church. They, they're a church who've turned away from idols to serve the living God. They are displaying love for one another. The message of God has rung out from them to, to, the, to the wider area. In many ways, they're exemplary. But there are a few deficiencies that Paul addresses in his letter. And he reminds them of responsibilities um, in this part of the letter. Um, we know that um, there was some false teaching about the second coming of Christ, that some thought that the dead had missed out on, on the return of Christ, and that needed to be corrected. We know that there was probably some adulterous relationships going on in the church that was causing hurt and harm to the church family. Um, we know that there were some idle people who were refusing to work for spiritual reasons and were becoming a burden on others. There were a number of deficiencies. And so Paul reminds the church community of their responsibilities. So there are four things that he reminds the Thessalonians that they have a responsibility for. And this is obviously relevant to us in our church. So first of all, community responsibilities towards church leaders, verses 12 and 13. 
Community responsibilities towards pastoral care, verses 14 to 15. Community responsibilities towards God, verses 16 to 18. And community responsibilities towards spiritual discernment in verse 19 to 21. And uh, you might be asking, well, what's happened to the rest of the passage? Well, we're going to use the blessing that Paul uses in verses 23 and 24 at the end of the, at the, end of the sermon to speak over one another, okay? Is that all right? Yeah. Good? All right, so I haven't forgotten about it. So let's look at these. First of all, community responsibilities towards leaders. Um, let's have a look at the text. Paul says, now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Um, The verb are over has a wide range of meaning in the original Greek. It can mean to lead, to protect, to care for, to direct, to rule. Um, So, for example, Paul uses the verb are over about elders in 1 Timothy 5, 17. He says, the elders who direct, that means are over, the affairs of the church. Um, But he also uses it of deacons in 1 Timothy 3, 12, when he says they must manage their children and household well. The the manage is is a translation of are over, manage or rule, the household. And Paul says elsewhere, doesn't he, that if anyone does not know how to look after his own family, he cannot, how is he going to manage or direct or lead the church of God? So Paul uses the analogy of leading in a family as a qualification for leading in a church family. So in other words, being, uh, uh, when he says are over, he means that elders and deacons and pastors are not over the church in a dictatorial overbearing way, but like a loving father cares for, leads, protects the family, right? Does that make sense? And yes, there is, there is a role to admonish at times, unpopular though it is in our contemporary culture. Leaders sometimes have to discipline, have to hold people accountable. Um, it's rare, but it sometimes uh, has to happen. We, and we have to protect the church from error, from false teaching, and from cultural influences that might seep in and shape the church culture. So there's a protecting role too. But the idea is one of loving care, not not dictatorial, overbearing leadership, but loving care of the flock. Like, Like a shepherd knows each of their sheep by name and loves them and cares for them, so under-shepherds, pastors, elders, deacons, are under the good shepherd, Jesus, and must care for the church in a loving, protecting, caring way. So that's, that's how it's to work. Um, with all that said, how are the church to relate to the leaders? Well, Paul says, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And he tells us to respect our leaders, right? Um, Now, I'm so grateful to God for the leaders that we have in this church, genuinely grateful for the deacons and elders that we have, because I know that they all love God and they all love the church here. 
And so I can say with absolute integrity to you this morning that we have a group of elected leaders serving voluntarily who love the Lord and who love the people of God in this place. Right? And who work hard among the church family here in many, many, many unseen ways. Most of us never see all the work that goes on behind the scenes and the love that which the leaders care for this congregation. And so I want to thank them and I want to thank God for them. And I, and I would want us to hold them in the highest regard and encourage them because of their hard work, right? Being a leader is hard work. You're, you, you are literally, your head is above the parapet and leaders need encouragement from the congregation, right? And we can do that here because they work hard and they love you and they love the Lord, right? So we can encourage them in the work that they do. That there is not an overbearing dictatorial leadership here, right? I can say that with utter integrity because it's true, right? Not, not all my colleagues could say that. Seriously. It, this, was, this is a hard passage for some churches to preach on because there are, there are churches out there where this, there isn't a respect for church leaders. And there's a, you know, there is a, a fracture between the leaders and the congregation. I thank God we don't have that here. So I can preach this with integrity and honesty and thank the leaders this morning. How much appreciation and love and encouragement do we give to our leaders? You know? <laughs> I wonder. The leaders are the first to be blamed when things go wrong and the last to be thanked, I think. You know? Oh, it's the leaders. The leaders this, the leaders that. Why don't we have a culture of thanking voluntary leaders who give up their time, their energy to serve and love you and love the Lord, right? It's biblical. Number two, community responsibilities towards pastoral care. There, I've checked the Bible and there is not a verse that says, unless the pastor has visited, you have not been visited. All right? I can... I, I want to confirm to you today that that is not in the Bible. Some people think it is. I'm sorry to disappoint you. It ain't in Scripture. Right? It ain't there. You will not find it. Um, I was with... Uh, I meet with a, a spiritual director um, every couple of months who happens to be a, a Church of England vicar. And they were telling me that uh, they're retired, but in their church, that, that, that had been said recently. And how disappointed they were that that was the view of the church, because it ain't biblical. I thought it was interesting that that's still around, isn't it? I haven't been visited because the pastor hasn't visited. Boy, I'm glad that that ain't scriptural, because if I go down with the virus, I, there's no pastoral care, according to that model of pastoral care, is there? You know, if one person goes down, it's, nobody else is going to do the pastoral care. Thank goodness that that is not biblical. And thank goodness that other people visit. Right? Now, don't hear me wrong. I will visit. Right? I will visit. But I'm not the only one who will visit. Right? I have a special responsibility to ensure that pastoral care systems are in place in this church. Please don't hear me wrong, but I'm not, 
But it's about teams. We have a pastoral care team who pick up people who are not in home groups, in small groups. You know, who are there to make contact with and keep an eye on people who are not part of a small group. But most of our pastoral care actually takes place in small groups. The pastoral care team seek to pick up on those who are not in small groups and to keep an eye on them, to look out for them, to serve them, to care for them. All right? Sometimes, uh, so we may more accurately call this the pastorhood of all believers, right? The pastorhood of all believers. We are all involved in, sp- in pastoral care. Some have a particular responsibility for oversight. That's me and the elders and the deacons and the pastoral care team and small group leaders, right? But everybody, all of us, have a responsibility for pastoral care. How do I know? Well, it says it in the Bible here. And we urge you, brothers, Paul's talking to the whole church there, and sisters in some translations, warn those who are idle. And there's a whole list of things that we are to do in the pastorhood of all believers about pastoral care. So let's look at this one. The term idle is used of an army that is undisciplined, not properly armed and unready for battle. In other words, it's a kind of chaotic, lazy, unprepared army. Just not getting on with the job, in other words. Sort of being caught um, on the hop, not, not, not ready for action. Um, and we know from earlier in the letter that there are a number of people in Thessalonica who are refusing to work with their hands and earn an honest living. And Paul says, you should go to work because you're bringing the church into disrepute. They were saying, oh, I need to be ready for the second coming. I need to prepare myself spiritually through prayer, so I'm not going to go to work because that's unspiritual. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay at home and pray and fast and ready myself for the Lord's coming. Unfortunately, they became a financial burden to other people, and they brought the name of Jesus into disrepute because outsiders would look in and say, well, what a lazy bunch. Why don't they go out to work like the rest of us and earn a decent crust? Why are they making up spiritual reasons for sponging off other people? That's not Christian, is it? And it brings Jesus into disrepute. It disrespects Jesus. We are called to work hard with our hands to, to earn an honest living, to display the fruit through hard work and through uh, not being dependent on others. Now, again, I'll just, just to repeat that I'm not talking here about those who are unable to work through ill health or unemployment. I'm talking about those who are able to work. What's the application in our culture? Well, there are, there are the idle in churches who, who have recently been seen on the news to sponge off others. We, we had that horrible situation of the church in, in London where the leaders were not caring at all for the congregation, but were leaning on members of the congregation to give over and above um, what they could afford, so that they were driving around in Mercedes and living a lavish lifestyle, while people in the congregation who could ill afford to give that amount of money were, were getting into debt. And this, thankfully, this church has been closed down by the Charity Commission because it was, the leaders were literally abusing the congregation, doing nothing and uh, you know, just using the money that was coming in for their own ends. And thankfully, they've been stopped and uh, disbanded as a church. That kind of idleness and spiritual abuse is just not on. 
you know? So spiritual abuse and idolatry does go on in church life. Secondly, there is a call on all of us to encourage the timid. By, Paul, by timid, Paul means those who are anxious, fearful, and very easily despondent. Now, there are going to be people in this season that we're in who are anxious and fearful and despondent, right? You might be one of them. Um, we need to come alongside people and just encourage them. Give them a scripture verse. Just, just pray, offer to pray for them. Just listen to them. Um, you know, we need to be on the lookout for people who are particularly prone to anxiety at this time, you know? Um, I, I think, you know, those who are self-isolating and very, very elderly and concerned for their health, that, you know, we can keep in contact with them, can't we? We can phone them. We can just maybe take a meal round or, or something just to keep up that contact. Um, I've asked um, Susie to, uh, hopefully this will work, to, to do some extra copies of the sermon this morning because I, a number of people said that they weren't coming to church because they were self-isolating. So we need to make sure that we do everything we can to keep them connected. So, you know, not everybody's got access online, have they? So, but we can copy more CDs to drop round. Just, these are simple things that we can do just to try and help people keep connected with the church and its message and to encourage them. Just a listening ear for somebody on the phone if, if they don't want to come out. Just whatever we can do. Let's, let's be on the lookout for church members, but let's also be on the lookout for people in our street, our neighbours who are vulnerable, isolated, so, who are self-isolating at this time. Maybe we could do some shopping for them or just keep an, an eye on them. There's all sorts of ways that we can uh, do those acts of kindness, isn't there? And it may be that our acts of kindness in Lent quite frankly, are, are for those who are isolated. This, it may be that we have to do some repetitive things and keep it simple, right? Um, Lord, give us wisdom in that. Uh, thirdly, we must also help the weak. Weak can mean sickly, frail, financially insecure, emotionally vulnerable, those who are vulnerable to temptation. Um, some people are addicted to patterns of sin, and habits that they need, um, they need help with, quite frankly. And we can come alongside people and just walk with them, listen to them, encourage them, help them. Um, but wherever we come across uh, the frail or the weak, um, the vulnerable, we're to help them. Is what, a, what, a, what an amazingly relevant text for now, isn't it, this? Um, you know, wherever we can with neighbours, with church folk. You know, let's, let's have a look who's not here today and make a mental note, right? And be thinking about how can we just look out for these people? Who's self-isolating? Who's, who's above a certain age category and might need a little bit of extra love and attention? And uh, who do we need to keep in contact with, especially because they are, you know, in their 80s or whatever at this time? You know, we just need to be looking out for people, don't we? And especially vigilant, but also just to do some practical things for people. I, you know all this, don't you? I'm just, uh, I'm just showing you that it's in the Bible, really. <laughs> Fourth, we must be patient with everyone. 
You've probably noticed that pastoral care requires a vast amount of patience. Um, People take a step forward and three steps back, don't they? Some of them are in your family, some of them are in the church, some of them are not in the church. But, you know, we pray and 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 people don't always get better in the timescale or in the way that we hope for. So we have to be patient. We have to persevere. We just have to keep holding people before God in prayer, don't we? We have to keep listening to people. We have to keep walking with people on their journey. Even when it appears that um, mentally, emotionally, physically, they're not getting any better. In fact, people may get worse when we're caring for them. That's a test, isn't it? You ever walk with somebody and been praying for them and they seem to have gone backwards and you go, oh Lord, what's going on here? Well, the, the answer is keep serving, keep loving, keep persevering. Keep listening. Keep holding them before God in prayer. Mental health issues don't resolve quickly, right? If ever, we've got to walk and journey over the long haul with people. Keep walking with them. Keep being with them. Just keep listening. Keep loving. Keep serving. It requires great patience, loving and caring for people. And we hope that people will show patience with us as well, right? When we need it. Um... Fifthly, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Um, goodness, we were in uh, Tesco car park just on, on, when was it? It was a Friday, I think. And there was, there, was, um, there was a kind of a fight for a car park in space. I mean, never mind getting into the store. That one of, Somebody that used to be in the toddler group here, she, she went to swing into a a car park in space and another lady had decided that she was going in that space and was on the horn continually and they they, we saw it happen, they nearly kind of, two cars nearly tried to park in one space and this woman was kind of in in this woman's face, kind of like this, as if to say, how dare you beat me to that space? And it was, it was total aggression, and that was before you got into the store. And then, of course, you see trolleys full of tins and toilet rolls and everything else. And it's like, it's like the apocalypse in there, isn't it? So I've, I've heard of sharp elbows in Surrey, but this goes beyond that, doesn't it? It's like, it's like Armageddon in there. Folks, make sure that none of us as Christians pay back wrong for wrong. Let's make sure that we are exemplary in this season of of anger, frustration, anxiety. People are fearful. We we can show a different way, can't we? We can show kindness to everyone else. That's everyone else in the community. Even at Tesco, we are to be kind. Especially at Tesco, we're to be kind. Brooklyn's at Tesco is a scary place. Crumbs. There's some aggression in there, isn't there? Wow. Be kind. Um, Third community responsibility is toward God. We are to be joyful always. Um, Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Joy is not so much related to circumstances. Joy is something that grows in us through the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Our relationship with God through the Holy Spirit doesn't change. Circumstances are always moving and changing, 
But we can have joy because we know that Christ is sovereign, that the earth belongs to the Lord, the world is in his hands, and that we have a relationship with Jesus that doesn't change because of the cross and the resurrection. We know who we are. We have a security in Christ. One commentator puts it like this, to rejoice always is to see the hand of God in whatever is happening and to remain certain of God's future salvation. You know, we have a hope that is steadfast and certain, right? We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And he'll guide me with his hand. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. These are truths that don't ever change. This is the anchor of our soul. This is the rock on which we stand in these uncertain and anxious times. So be joyful. We're also to pray continually. Um, this doesn't mean praying without interruption. Um, I hope that you do some other things other than praying during, during the day. What it means is, um, you know, constantly in conversation with Father when you need to be. You know, giving thanks to God. So when you're walking down the road, just thank him for, the, for, the, for, for nature, for the joy of creation. Thank him that his imprints are everywhere. Um, if you're just about to make a difficult phone call or write a difficult email, um, why don't you pray about it before you send it? Why don't you pray about that meeting before it starts that you're worried about? Why don't you constantly lift your work to God in prayer, asking him to strengthen you? When you're weary... And we all get weary, don't we? When you're feeling tired and worn out and frustrated and weary, just keep bringing yourself to God. One of my, I've said this before, one of my favourite little songs is Give Me Oil In My Lamp. You know, when I'm feeling weary, I just start singing it in my head. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me serving. Give me love in my heart, I pray. Pray continually. Third, give thanks in all circumstances. Paul does not say give thanks for all circumstances. That would be weird, wouldn't it? Oh Lord, we bless you and thank you for the coronavirus. Doesn't say that. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. There, is all, there are always things that we can thank God for in the midst of trial. Always things to give thanks for. Our salvation in Christ, our eternal inheritance, that God is our loving Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us the gifts of creation, the gift of food on the table, the gift of toilet paper, if you can get it. <laughs> you know, we can give thanks, so I couldn't resist it. <laughs> we, <laughs> we give thanks to God in all circumstances because he is who he is. He doesn't change. And there's always something to give thanks for. The fourth and last community responsibility is towards spiritual discernment, verse 19 to 21. Um, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Um, I think what they were doing in Thessalonica was throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Paul says about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. Um, because you know that Jesus said himself, he doesn't know when, the, when he's coming back. Only the Father knows. And I reckon, I think this is a pretty good guess, and I've got some commentators who would back me up on this. I think there were probably some prophecies around in the church at Thessalonica that were saying, we know when he's coming. We've got the times and dates. Kind of contemporary, isn't it? 
How many, how many prophecies have we had recently about, oh yeah, he's coming on, and you go, oh, it's past. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's contemporary, isn't it? And I think there were false prophecies and false teaching around Thessalonica about, about the return of Jesus. Some felt that because um, some people had died, and they would miss out on the Lord's coming, and they wouldn't be raised from the dead and wouldn't inherit eternal life because they'd already died. Nonsense, says Paul. So there was some false prophecy around. So they started treating prophecy with contempt. They shut down prophecy. They put prophecy in spiritual isolation, as it were, and it wasn't being allowed because there had been some bad experiences. But Paul says, don't do that. Don't treat prophecy with contempt, but test it. Test it. Um, prophecy, by the way, is spontaneous, spirit-inspired messages delivered orally. Now, usually they're in words, but where there's a picture, then it needs to be interpreted in words as well. Um, so sometimes God might give someone a picture, and we need to just put some words to that to help people understand what that picture might be saying to the church. Sometimes God gives us a word um, through someone. It is a spirit-inspired message. Very often, prophecy is not so much future foretelling as forthtelling. In other words, God wants to speak to and encourage and strengthen and edify his church in the moment, and, or to correct them or warn them. Um, but sometimes there is a futuristic element to it, but very often it's forthtelling rather than foretelling. Um, we want to encourage prophecy, um, not, not quench it, because we want to hear from God. God will never contradict or go against Scripture, right? So if a prophecy appears to clash with Scripture, I know which one I'm going to throw out. I'm going to throw out the so-called prophecy. So how do you know... Um, well, I, was, I grew up in Siren Sister Baptist Church, um, and I remember when I was quite young, there was a lady, a visitor, one evening service, who came in, and she went up into the balcony, and um, so no, no comment about the balcony here, guys, please. <laughs> she went up into the balcony, because they had a balcony like this one at the back, and um, in a loud voice, in a, in a time of open praise, she, she said, thus saith the Lord, which always gets me nervous. And I, and I start getting suspicious with, thus saith the Lord, as if, as if she's speaking like Jeremiah or something. But she said, the Lord is calling all of us to leave the churches and start new ones. Now, I don't see that in Scripture, unless I've, unless I've uh, missed something. I don't see it in the Bible. It certainly wasn't the, the kind of messages that were being preached at the church at the time. So there was no context to it. It was one of those random, negative messages from nowhere that you just go, nah. And the church went, collectively, nah. I remember somebody get up and they said, we do not believe that's a word from the Lord. Please sit down. And the woman shut up. There is, and that was the end of that. It just, it didn't need any more than the pastor to say that. And that sometimes that's it. But together we discern as the body. Um, you, you just get a sense, quite frankly, of whether something is from the Lord or not. Um, 
Now, we, we've got some guidelines here. Jesus speaks to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and he always encourages them. Have you noticed that? He always has good things to say, even to the worst churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And there are, there are some bad ones in there. But he always starts by encouraging them. So be very wary and suspicious of a prophecy that, that just sows gloom and doom and judgment on the church. Because it's probably not from the Lord. It's probably from the source of the spirit of the person or from a demonic source. Prophecy should never make you feel gloom and doom and judged and condemned without, without a positive edification and building up and comforting and strengthening element. It ain't from the Lord. The Lord does warn and correct, but he also encourages and strengthens his people. So be very, very wary of strong, condemning, judgmental messages. My caution would be reject them. They're not, they're not from the Lord. You may have had a prophecy delivered by someone into your life. We've, we've had one of these, uh, would you believe, at a Christian conference where somebody walked up to my wife and said, the Lord says to you, and it was an utterly condemning word. And we had to reject it. Just said, no, we're not, we're not, we're not allowing that curse to be over us. Because it was a curse. And yet it was dressed up in the language of this is a word from the Lord. You know, nonsense. So be wary. Test everything. If it doesn't build you up, if it makes your spirit feel uneasy and condemned, it's unlikely to be from the Lord. And our plumb line, our measure is scripture. So if somebody stands up and says, I've got a word from the Lord, and quite frankly, it, it's not in season, it doesn't line up with the Sunday by Sunday season of teaching that we're in, we should be very wary. If something comes out of the blue that doesn't appear to land in the season of teaching that we're in, be wary of it. Particularly if it's a strong condemning message. So this is something that we can discern together as a community, but ultimately we use scripture as our plumb line. I need to come into land. What is your view of church? Do you come, I hope you don't, I'm sure you don't, I hope you don't just come as a consumer, as a spectator, looking to see what you can get out of the meeting, the gathering, wherever that gathering is. I hope you come aware of and willing to live out your community responsibilities towards leaders, towards pastoral care, towards spiritual discernment, towards using your gifts, your spiritual gifts to serve, whether that be prophecy or tongues with interpretation or, or musical gifts or serving gifts or helping gifts or pastoral gifts. I hope you come saying to the Lord, where can I serve today? I hope that's how you come to church. Lord, how can I be used today to build up your kingdom and to encourage and strengthen the church? I hope that's how you come, because that's how Paul would have us come, aware of and willing to act on our responsibilities towards the community. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the church family here. Thank you for those that lead it and serve it. 